This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, rethinking the Army's cavalry design, how a new force structure could help the transition to fighting near-peer competitors. Then, preventing adversaries from investing in American technology and using it against the U.S. How the Defense Department protects national security by protecting American innovation and using drones to get to dangerous accident sites quicker. How those unmanned devices can help federal investigators piece together what went wrong in the moments before a plane crash. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Army plans to modernize its force structure to shift from counterterrorism and counterinsurgency to a focus on confronting China and Russia. A new pilot program aims to fill the current gaps in cavalry design. Major General John Richardson is the commanding general of the Army's 1st Cavalry Division. General, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mimi. Great, uh, great to be here, and I appreciate to... Uh Give me the opportunity to talk about this. Well, tell us a little bit about what motivated you to start thinking about changes to your division. Well, it's really the it's the the army has looked at uh, changes that needed to be made as we look at the the threat of uh, of uh, great power competition versus uh, an era of uh, fighting counterinsurgency and, and counter terrorism, as you mentioned in, in the opening. And so uh, as the Army looked at it at, at, our, our, at Fort Leavenworth, they determined we had gaps in uh, our formations because we had reorganized uh, for combat to fight a counterinsurgency. And I think the best way to, to frame it is to talk about battlefield framework. Uh, and that is uh, during the Cold War, as we prepared to to uh, fight the Soviet Union, uh, we talked about a close fight and a deep fight uh, and a rear fight. And so we broke the battlefield up uh, literally uh, into these different components. And the close fight would be what you think of a platoon, a company, a battalion, or a brigade would execute. And that's uh, moving to a position of relative advantage uh, in close combat. And then the deep fight would have been the division and the core, and that's attacking in depth, uh, deeper into the enemy's rear. Uh, the purpose of it in the 80s and 90s with the doctrine and with the equipment that we had at that point was really trying to separate echelons so, so that a brigade would only have to fight one element at a time so they could defeat them in, in detail and the division and the corps would attack deeper in depth to slow down the enemy so the brigades could fight one at a time. Well, so, kind of so, but General, does this mean that we're just going to go back to how things were in the Cold War, force structure-wise, and, and how things are set up? Yes and no. Uh, yes, we are going to have to restructure our divisions uh, for large-scale combat operations, because the Cold War was going to be a large-scale combat operation. Would potentially... Uh, the fight of the future with a, a, a near peer uh, would be large scale combat operations. So there are certain elements that have to be reestablished 
uh, in our formations. The difference is we're talking about multi-domain operations now. We've added space, we've added cyber, uh, and we've added some, some capabilities, long-range precision fires that we didn't have in the 80s and 90s. So while we rebuild the division to fight as a division, we also take into consideration the changes in technology and then how that will apply. What it does is it re recreates this idea of a close and deep fight. The deep fight might not be about separating an echelon like it was in the Cold War. Now it's about penetrating the enemy's air defense, integrated air defense artillery, uh, their integrated fires capabilities so that we can then penetrate with our, our brigade combat teams close with and then destroy the enemy by exploiting uh, that success and then winning decisively. So can you give us a little bit more specifics about what will be different um, in the weapons, the equipment, the organization um, in this new design that you're discussing at the division level? So I think it's mo mostly about organization. Uh, we are, of course, we have Army Futures Command and we are building uh, a more modern army uh, and the Department of the Army, uh, the, the Department of the Army is well on its way on uh, modernizing for 2030, 2035. Uh, but right now it's more about organizational structure. And, and what we did to fight the counterinsurgency, uh, because it really wasn't a quote deep fight, it was, a, you know, counterinsurgency is, is a, a local fight. And so we broke up the capabilities of a division and pushed them down into the brigade combat teams military intelligence, signal, uh, artillery. Uh, in a in a large-scale combat operation, a lot of those capabilities need to be centralized at the division so that we can fight this deep fight. And so what we're, what we're seeing is a reconsolidation of a lot of the assets that we pushed down to the brigade combat team so that they could more effectively fight a counterinsurgency. And now we were consolidating them back at the division so that for large-scale combat operations, we can fight the deep fight to set the conditions for the brigade combat teams that have the primary role of winning that close fight um, with the tanks, the Bradleys, the Apaches, uh, the artillery. General, I wonder what you've learned from watching Russia execute this war in Ukraine that you can apply to American uh, Army force structures. So, I, I you know, as we watched this play out with Russia. If, if nothing else, it has validated much of what our doctrine states, and that is it requires combined arms at the decisive point. Uh, and uh, in, when I say combined arms, I'm talking uh, logistics, the ability to integrate uh, maneuver forces, so infantry and armor with uh, fires, which is artillery, uh, and then uh, the integration of and the and the teaming of infantry and armor, uh, and I think we were seeing that uh, in spades well, in Ukraine, uh, the the Russians' inability to do this synchronization and integration, and I think that that is what's so powerful about the United States Army uh, is is our ability uh, to synchronize and integrate combined arms to maximize the effect at the decisive point, and uh, and so. Uh, as we look at what the Russians are going through, uh, definitely we are checking off uh, the lessons learned on, on what not to do and, and really doubling down on what we do well. All right. Well, General, appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much.
Thanks, Mimi. Up next on Government Matters, protecting American tech companies from foreign government investments. Why an angel investor might be a wolf in sheep's clothing. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Defense Department works to prevent adversaries from co-opting American technology and using it against the U.S. One aspect of this mission is monitoring and preventing hostile foreign government investments in American technology companies. At the forefront of that effort is David Rader. He's Deputy Director of the Office of Foreign Investment Review at the Defense Department. David, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So why might an adversary look to invest in American technology, and how widespread is that practice? Yeah, I, I would uh, equate it to kind of stealing from your classmates' answers on the test. Uh, we put all the hard work in on the R&D side, the research and development, the innovation. We fund it. We test it. We evaluate it. And once we get to that 90% solution or even the 100% solution, uh, it's a great time for the adversary to swoop in, take uh, you know our best tech, and then use it against us or use it in their own interests. Uh, we see it pretty widespread. Um, we have a lot of controls in place to protect it and mitigate against it. But as you can understand, you know, government is small relative to the global economy and the global workforce, including the American one. And so it's a constant game of cat and mouse with a lot of challenges for us. So you lead the Defense Department's effort to really reinvigorate and expand investment monitoring. Can you tell us how you go about doing that? Yeah, and so there's a process called CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. That's a very strict uh, and, and narrow regulatory approach to uh, screening inbound investments. And so we've taken a different uh, or supplementary approach to that. Uh, used to be a banker by trade. I brought in a lot of data scientists um, and finance professionals to really understand what makes the market move. And then, you know, partnered with our intelligence colleagues or policy colleagues to look at what China is looking at, what Russia is looking at, what Made in China 2025 says. Because we, instead of thinking of America, what we need to protect, we need to also recognize what our adversaries or our competitors are going after. And so we make that a priority, and then we kind of marry these two worlds together to really get a narrow group of, of technologies and companies and capabilities that we're looking to protect and defend, as well as promote. You know, I know a lot of your work might be classified, but can you give us an example in general terms, how you identify an issue and then how you address it? Yeah, and, and so indeed, most of it is classified or it falls even into just business proprietary. We don't want to give a unfair advantage to competitors of businesses. We want to protect them as well. Um, and so we use a lot of commercial tools. Uh, that's one of our main, uh, you know, inputs. Uh, the intelligence community is a great partner, as well as industry. We get phone calls from companies that say, hey, have you heard about X? Or law firm says, you know, are you guys tracking Y? And so we really use a lot of that information to really guide our, uh, our research and our investigations and our work streams. And then for mitigation, we have a few capabilities, um, you know, whether it's a CFIUS filing or some different action we would take through a different lens or partnering through the interagency. Um, we have a lot of great authorities within government, but they're spread out, and rightfully so. You don't want a single agency to be able to control the economy. So we lean on the State Department or Commerce or the SEC, Securities Exchange Commission, or the FAA. And then, you know, we help to work together to identify risks and the best and most appropriate way to effectively mitigate and ultimately eliminate the risks. You know, some foreign investments are easier to spot than others. What are some of the tactics that investors use to mask who they actually represent and what their ultimate goals are. 
Yeah, they're, uh, they're, they're clever. They have a lot of different incentive structures that allow uh, foreign investors to use creative tools. Um, we've seen a shift, I would say, from, from traditional M&A, you know, hey, we're China, we're here to buy your, your company, to running money through different countries, through unique funds and offshore tax structures, a lot of obfuscated ownership. So when you look and say, hey, this is a you know, I'll pick on the Canadians here. This is a Canadian company trying to buy an American company, but don't realize behind that, the fund might actually be somewhere else. It might actually, you know, have the intention from a different larger uh, organization. And so really trying to pull that apart and understand that what you see on the four corners of the document uh, might not actually be uh, the, the truth behind the cause there. You're particularly uh, interested in monitoring investments in the space industry. What can you tell us about the threat of foreign investors in space technology? Uh, it's pretty widespread uh, because the space industry is so commercially driven now. You know, historically, the U.S. government, I would say, led space in the 70s and 80s, and we've seen a shift to commercial. And now with the government being a consumer or a customer of the space industry, um, you know, our, our relationship with it has changed. There's a lot of great people in the space industry. They're running really fast to build the next great widget, you know, to get good services out there so we can continue to communicate and see what the world looks like and work with defense. But for that same reason, you know, there's a lot of money and a lot of technology flowing around the world that not everybody has a time to stop and look at. Um, and then we also have a lot of interesting collaboration in the space industry with other countries, namely in the, uh, you know, namely in scientific uh, pursuits. But of course, there's a downside of that, which is the risk of transferring out technology, which could be used at, you know, against us. So David, you know, smaller companies and startups might be more likely to consider foreign investments. Um, they need the money and it's very hard for them to turn down money regardless of the, the, where it's coming from. I wonder what's your message to those contractors who want to protect themselves and protect national security? Yeah, absolutely. The physics of the market obligate businesses to do their best to survive, thrive, and grow. And so, we, you know, with that awareness, I would argue there, there's $2 trillion roughly of dry powder on the sidelines right now in the U.S. market. There's a lot of capital looking for a good place to go. So I think better engagement with government and the industry, uh, back to our core financiers in America and around the world, our partners, uh, is critical. I think current leadership and, uh, you know, my boss specifically has done a great job of engagement so that companies are aware of the risks that exist, as well as the opportunities which exist uh, that maybe government can play a role in broken a deal or building relationships, and then get out of the way and let the private sector, you know, let the innovators link up with the financiers who are really suited for this. There's also some government programs, Small Business Innovation Research or Defense Production Act Title III, that are meant to really help grow uh, trusted partners. And so there's a lot of opportunities for government and the private sector to work together and make it so that the risks kind of go away on their own because they become so financially stable or robust that 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 uh, you know that interest in foreign investment, foreign capital is is uh, you know greatly reduced. All right, David, we appreciate your work on this, and thank you so much for being on the program. Absolutely, thanks. Coming next, the National Transportation Safety Board says drones could help crews get to more accident sites each year and how they're balancing automation and safety. We'll be right back. The National Transportation Safety Board plans to expand drone operations. The NTSB cataloged hundreds of plane accidents last year and said drones can help crews respond faster to dangerous accident sites. Catherine Gagne is an unmanned aircraft system operator in the Office of Aviation Safety at the NTSB. 
Kathy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Well, start by telling us about the mission of the NTSB and how you go about your work. Sure. So the National Transportation Safety Board, we are a federal agency charged by Congress for investigating transportation accidents. Uh, we investigate accidents to determine the causes so that we can issue safety recommendations to help prevent future accidents. Uh, documenting uh, site, accident sites, has always been part of our process, but we've begun integrating the use of drones to do that more efficiently. All right, so explain that. How are drones going to be used at accident sites, and what are the benefits? Well, the benefits that we've seen, um, you know, as I mentioned, we've always done accident site documentation through photography. So back in the day, it was film cameras, and we progressed to digital. With the drones, it gives us the opportunity to position a high-resolution camera in very precisely in space. Now, we knew right away that we would reap benefits on having good site photography and video, but what has come as a big surprise is the ability to develop um, photogrammetric data and orthomosaic maps would actually enable the investigators to perform accident site measurements after they leave the scene. So it increases their efficiency on how much time they actually spend on scene, and it also enables us to enable them to access areas that might not be safe to put personnel there. We can still capture imagery by sending the drone. So is it actually more cost effective? Are you able to get to accident sites faster because of drones? What, what are the specific benefits? Well, a few case examples that might help illustrate that is um, we had an accident in Arizona where a few of us happened to be in town with the drones and while the investigator was still en route to the scene, we were able to access the accident site, acquire the imagery to develop the um, orthomosaic map and measuring tools, process all that data, have all the basic measurements ready for him, and create all the documentation before he even arrived. So that allowed him to increase his efficiency on scene, spend less time in the desert, and to have the site cleaned up and, and out of the way uh, much faster than we normally would. If we had to take manual measurements, we might be keeping roadways closed longer, airports closed longer. It's really enabled us to increase the speed at which we can conduct site measurements. So you also use drones to replicate the conditions of um, that led to an aircraft accident. Explain how you do that. We've had some very interesting use cases. Uh, there was one case in which we, we had a helicopter that was flying over featureless terrain and ended up crashing in an accident that our investigator suspected might have been controlled flight into terrain. Um, to test his theory, we were able to take the drone, program it with the data for the final moments of the aircraft. We had data for it below 400 feet, fly the drone along that flight path under similar visibility conditions and use the video to see what the pilot might have been seeing at the time of the accident. And there were some very compelling visual illusions, and it enables us to show the public how we support our analysis on some of these accidents. And how do you address privacy concerns? Because unfortunately, you're dealing with um, aviation accidents. A lot of people can die. How do you protect the privacy of victims? Oh, absolutely. Privacy has always been a concern with the agency. We're, we're wholly transparent. Our dockets are public. Uh, so our privacy rules haven't changed since we've used drones, but we incorporate procedures to ensure that our drones are capturing imagery that doesn't violate privacy type concerns. We, you know, we point the camera away from people. We don't photograph things that aren't relevant to the analysis of the accident. It's all in keeping with our, our privacy policies. 
You're also working on automating drones, and things can go wrong with drones, especially the automated ones. So how are you balancing that? How are you taking care of the safety of the drones themselves, making sure that they don't fall out of the sky and hurt somebody on the ground? You know, sure, that is, a, that is a very valid concern. So drones are technically aircraft, and we are a federal agency, so we operate our drone program, even though our drones are about the size of a clock radio, they're very small, um, we operate them as a federal agency would operate a manned aircraft program. So we have training manuals, standard operating procedures. We take it very seriously with our automated programs. And when the drone is in automated flight, we're monitoring them constantly. Our training um, procedures and our currency for our, um, our pilots, we practice all the time, as you would with a manned aircraft, emergency procedures and what to do to pull them out of automation. We never fly over people. We never fly over roadways. Our procedures are pretty robust. And briefly, are you looking to expand this program? We're hoping to. So we've had our drones for several years now. Uh, we need to start phasing them out and bringing in new ones. Where we really need to expand is to have more operators within the agency. We don't have any dedicated drone operators. We are all NTSB employees and investigators who acquire this skill as, as, a, as a tool to help be a technical resource. So um, the, more, the deeper the field that we can have within the agency, the better the ability we would have to respond. Kathy, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. 
Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.